welcome to Galaxy Brains. The weekly podcast from Galaxy Research, recording live in New York in my Gamo sneakers. I'm flipping on the old tech like I'm rolling beepers. We're in the arena, we're not up in the bleachers. A couple special features can't hold a candle me. I'm heavy on the block, yo, I let my handle speak. We analyze the changes to take a little peek. With help from our guest, Nansen's Ace of Anavik. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of Firmwide Research at Galaxy Digital. We have a great show today. We're talking with Nansen's CEO and founder, Alex Savanovic, about proof of reserves and on-chain data. It's a great discussion. I know you'll enjoy. And of course, we'll check in with our good friend, Bimnet of BB from Galaxy Trading about markets and get an update there. But before we get into all of that, I need to tell you to please refer to the link to the disclaimer in the podcast notes and note that none of the information in this podcast constitutes investment advice, a recommendation, offer, or solicitation by Galaxy Digital or any of its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Um, that's all we've got for the intro. I think we're ready to hop right into it. Let's go now to our friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Digital Trading. As always, great to have you here. Thanks for having me. How's it going? You know, it's uh, it's going. All it's right. going. Markets have kind of turned a little bit recently. Um, it's been off the back of really exceptionally strong like U.S. data, uh, PPI, employment stuff, and you've also had some pretty hawkish Fed speak. Although it's not new, um, so you've had a repricing in the rate market, and that's kind of uh, caused equities to, to take a little bit of a of a break, yep. and I think it's it's totally reasonable um, taking a step back. I think you know what has driven a lot of price action this year in many markets has been um, an incredible degree of short covering, uh, whether it was in crypto or EM equities or you know non profitable tech that had been beaten up. Uh, so what you've had happen to start the year is is sort of a massive repricing of risk assets as as folks got stopped out of things. And to give you an idea, looking at like some PB data that we follow, uh, one bank reported it was like they had 12 consecutive days of just like insane short covering. It was wow. like one of the longest periods of like that in, in their entire history that they wow. kept track of the data. So you had a lot of short covering and we knew that in crypto at least there was, you know, $500 million in liquidations of both of those times that, you know, crypto re really jumps, popped off. Yeah. So a lot of the price action this year has been driven by, by short covering. And then you got to a point um, last week uh, where you had a really aggressive rate move. Um, and so once the short covering is done, you really need marginal buyers to kind of support that that market and in and, and every market. And at least in traditional markets, um, you know, equities kind of lacked that 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 marginal buyer in, in a meaningful way, um, because uh, as we mentioned earlier, a lot of that buying was driven by like you know short covering and then a yeah. little bit of FOMO. Chasing, so it's been drifting a little lower. Over it's the been last drifting week a little so, lower. Yeah. And I think that speaks to kind of you know one of the points you know I hope we touch on later, which is you know like excess liquidity in the market. And I think people totally have. Uh, a misunderstanding of what that means in today's context because the difference between you know excess funds in a in a 0% interest rate environment and ex, you know excess liquidity in a 5% interest rate environment is tremendous right and one you don't get paid to to sleep at night uh, and another you get paid quite well to sleep super comfortably 
Um, and so what that means is every time that a, mar a marginal dollar gets deployed in risk assets, it's at the cost of 5% overnight rates. Right. And so even if you have $100 billion of excess liquidity in the market, that $100 billion is earning 5% plus at no risk. Yeah. And so... Like, I get it, you know, when people talk about, you know, there's still tons of cash in the market, the market's awash, people still trying to buy stuff. But don't forget, we're in a 5%, you know, overnight interest rate environment. And that's fundamentally different yeah. than... You're not hunting for, hunting like, for yield. You. Yeah. You're not forced to go out the risk curve. It used to be that, you know, fixed income investors, to get any yield, would have to go so far out the curve. You got to take risk seven, 10-year duration. Well, now overnight duration gets you much better yield than that 10-year paper. It's crazy. And so it, it is wild. And I think people have a complete misunderstanding of, of, of that like construct. And what does that mean in, in actuality? It means that people don't feel like they have to buy the dip in stocks. Yeah. There's no urgency. Yeah. Or at least the institutional investor totally. doesn't. So uh, – yeah, I think one of the reasons you bring this up, too, is that there have been some headlines about like some central banks that mm -hmm. have been injecting more liquidity. Absolutely. And I think people on Twitter have been misinterpreting that. No, absolutely. What, so yeah, what one, were those? You know, there's a difference between, you know, actually buying assets in the open market and providing financing for them. So, you know, for example, the PBOC, they reverse repo in assets. They provide short-term lending versus an asset. And so somebody gets cash versus securities, but it's not really a sale and their balance sheet isn't really going up. And a, lot of, a lot of those funds tend to stick in the in the, you know, financial plumbing or the banking system, you know, within their respective economy. Japan being uh, another example, right. you know, where, you know, they're doing all these, you know, emergency bond purchases uh, and, you know, that money is really it's not going past the Japanese banking system and Right, so it doesn't it, you know, filter way. out in a way that it can support risk assets, for example. It, 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 it's, it's less direct yeah. than people are, are thinking. Yeah. Uh, versus like when the Fed was buying $4 billion of treasuries and mortgage-backed assets, like, no, that was a, a big deal. Yeah, that was but directly that, in the market. That was directly in, you know, right. in, in the market. But they were also doing it by providing all these financing lines and facilities, et cetera. Um, but yeah, it's it's it's... It's, it's a different paradigm now, and I think people are, yeah. you know, constantly misinterpreting it because nobody is used to the idea of higher interest rates. I mean, when was the last time rates were this high? I mean, like decades, right? Well, do we even get this high? In, well, did like, we get that high in two thousand? How high well, did we? Yeah, 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 okay. yeah. I mean, in but it's okay. Twenty years though. But it's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. But it's also the idea of higher for longer. Right. Right. And like, that's when you said that the uh, markets are repricing the rates market. That's what they're seeing. That Fed speak. That. Hawkish Fed speak last week um, yeah. has resulted in. Um, I think we were looking at it right. There's now they had been pricing and the market had been pricing in some cuts by the end of the yeah, year. Yeah, you had about seventy basis points of repricing yeah. of cuts. So we went from what like cutting the fifty to like even still rising and. Uh, I, I don't have it off the top of my head, but, but yeah, it was it's more like cutting like hundred and thirty, and you went to like. And now only, it's like flat. Like no, like closer to like sixty or yeah, fifty okay. or. You know, yeah. So, so P, like, again, higher for longer is higher being further longer. priced in yes, now. Yeah. Yes. And the, the the reason for it, I mean, uh, Bullard ex explained it, you know, the, this morning on on CNBC. I mean, it's like you have risks of like inflation taking off again. That is what right? they don't want. That's they what don't you want know, the '70s to happen, where it's like correct. They raise, then they lower, then inflation happens, they have to and, raise again. And, and then when you think about it in the context of the employment market, 
the basically the employment market's like telling you you can do whatever you want. You, we can bear you, more hikes. We can bear more hikes. So why not do it? Yeah. Right. We've you're not. About you're this. not putting the real you economy. You can always cut. You can always cut. But you're not really putting the the labor market at risk by jacking up rates. Not yet. Not yet. They can go higher. They can. They're and being so told. it's just it's just a risk reward decision yeah. that that the the Fed is making. At the same time, like you can see. Like housing inventories are up, like the interest rate sensitive parts of the economy are reacting appropriately. Yeah. And there are always unintended consequences um, to, you know, huge monetary policy changes and, and, and big ones. And so, you know, I, I definitely think that while I appreciate, you know, Bullard's argument that you're not really risking much by jacking up rates really high. Something could I, happen. Like, yeah, something could, could easily happen. And I just, you just have to think, like, it's not, like a month of high rates will crack the market, but six months of really high rates, a year of really high rates, like you we could just don't know yet. But you said this know. before too, like uh, you know when rates are at zero, well, mm -hmm. you've got no more tools in your tool belt if you have to stimulate the economy, right? But if rates are at five, you can cut them back, right? So it's like go high when you can, knowing that if you know shit starts to break, yeah. You can then pull back because you have all this, you know, airspace below you. Yeah. Um, and that that seems to be the calculus right now, right? That, that, that is the calculus. It can bear more, so why not yeah. do it? And but, then we'll pull back if we have to. No, absolutely. But it's just like I, I keep trying to think about, like, you know, what, what the end game or what the end status of this looks like. Yeah. And it's really tough for me to see a scenario where, like, everything's going to shit, per se. Right. Like, like everything that I'm looking at, it's like, like, you understand the, the inflation problem we have now is like, it's a good problem to have. The economy is so strong and so robust that it could handle, you know, four or 5% interest rates while making more people employed. And while people are getting raises and, you know, generally people are feeling good, gas prices have been coming off. Like, this is like a very, like desirable economy. The economy is doing pretty well, is what you're it's, saying, it's, overall. It's super well. Yeah. Um, it's not great for investing necessarily right now, but for working and earning and yeah. and even saving. Better better so, savers so, market than it's been in decades. Cor correct. And so really, I mean, I had a manager once that you know describes it this way, but it's basically central bank policy for the past three decades, with the exception of you know last year, has been crucifying the savings base. Right. But historically, you, you just like you weren't getting compensated to save. It basically led to just a lot more consumption. Yeah. Because nobody ever got paid to save. You got paid to invest and like you know putting money in stock markets. But you know for your average mom pop putting money into savings, it's been awful. Now I'll argue with you that it is still awful. Okay. You were talking about like uh, somebody was telling me I actually haven't checked. Yeah, like the banks aren't passing it through, the, right? The, the, Exactly. The savings rate, interest rates on, on most like ma and pa checking accounts are still like sub 100 basis points. That's crazy. Even though the, they're Banks parking it at four can, plus. Yeah. So they're collecting a huge interest rate margin. And I think, you know, folks over time will wake up to that. And demand. And, and they will go to Treasury Direct and buy bills or yeah. they'll move to, you know, savings accounts that are much more attractive. Competition will emerge better. It, it, yeah. it will emerge. And like, I'll give you an example. Like, 
Treasury Direct is one of the most searched things on Investopedia this year. Yep. Because everybody's like, oh, well, wait a I second, I can buy these things right right from the government itself. Okay, one more thing I wanted to bring I up. I could go all day. I know. One more thing I want to bring up before we move on and, and, and wrap this up. Um, we were talking about central banks. Uh, Augustin Karstens, uh, who is the chief, the head of the Bank of International Settlements, the BIS. Rolls off the tongue. Yeah, often mm. called the central banker's central bank. Mm. He said, there's a headline in Bloomberg like today. Pontification Square? <laughs> he said, crypto lost the battle against fiat currency. He says, uh, quote, the battle has been won. Carson's told Bloomberg TV in an interview Wednesday, a technology doesn't make trusted money. And I will just say, when I read this, I, I first of all, I think of like superhero movies. There's always a supervillain who's prematurely declaring victory. And to me, when I read this, I think, um, sir, you know, and he's certainly, I think, you know, on economics and monetary stuff, I'm sure he's a lot smarter than I am. But yeah. I will say, pretty sure Bitcoin and crypto has not run its course yet. No, absolutely. Seems like you're calling the game a little early there, sir. No, he's definitely calling the game <laughs> a little bit bit early now. But, you know, I, I definitely respect his point of view from the standpoint of, okay, like, you know, what are the key things that crypto is trying to accomplish, right? Like, instant 24 settlement at all times, right? That's something that these central banks can get to. Yeah, eventually. they could do that. They could they compete could. with that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we know they can't compete with scarcity in the end. Yes, yeah, scarcity. They will always they, print more money. Exactly. <laughs> that that I mean, it's literally in the term economics. Right. Economics is a study of scarcity. Yeah. Essentially, uh, and so like yeah, the Bitcoin story that's not over. Yeah, he is by, by any means. Yeah. But could I understand why he's saying that about something like stables? Yes. I mean, you a lot have, of the world's working on CBDCs. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's crazy to think, I mean, the privacy considerations are just Enormous. so immense. Enormous. And and it, money has never like been investigated that that way or like I know. tracking people in real time as they spend. Crazy. I mean, you have countries that are giving people social scorecards based on their like, spending. Right? Like you can have like exploding payments where like oh, if you don't spend it in like 10 days, yeah. you lose it. Or if you it have, is, if it you is actually spend wild. It on this, it, no, it's that's a you know what we're gonna do a show on CBDCs at some point. So oh. let's table that. But that is a huge issue. And I no, I'm, absolutely. I'm and also for anybody yeah. that didn't check out last week's podcast with yeah, Austin with, Campbell with Austin, it yeah. was unbelievable. That guy is a is a genius in the stablecoin world. So, yes. Um, well, Ben, great as always. Great to see you. And um, pleasure. And thanks for coming. Let's go now to my interview with Alex Savanovic, uh, founder and CEO of Nansen, an on-chain data and analysis company. Um, Alex is in Singapore. We're in New York, so we previously recorded this at a time that worked for both of us. Let's run it. Let's go now to our guest, Alex Savanovic, uh, CEO and founder of Nansen. How are you, Alex? Good to see you. I'm great, Alex. Thanks for having me. I've really wanted to talk to you, Alex. Uh, we got two Alexes talking crypto. It's what, what a thing. I've really wanted to talk to you for a long time, but in particular after, let's get right into this, after the FTX collapse, there was a big renewed push for proof of reserves uh, at exchanges. And Nansen was at the forefront um, with Binance, sort of, I guess. How did this happen? You, you have a dashboard uh, that shows Binance's uh, declared assets. Did they reach out to you? Did you reach out to them uh, to get those addresses tagged? How did that work? Yeah, it's funny. This is something I've been talking about for a long time. Uh, I think the first time I spoke up about it in public was when I was on a panel here in Singapore with uh, the Monetary Authority of Singapore, the MAS, which is kind of like the Fed and 
um, the SEC and kind of all the regulators and central bank rolled up into one entity. And I was suggesting that they should ask for any licensed exchange in Singapore to disclose their addresses so that people could have more transparency on what's happening with customer deposits. So this was in September. And of course, we know what happened a couple of months later with FTX. And so somehow the industry kind of had to self-regulate instead. And um, I was pushing for this a lot on, on Twitter. Of course, many people were pushing for this, that we need more transparency. We had been tracking exchanges for years at that point, actually. But uh, our methods, which maybe we'll get into a bit later, are somewhat you know probabilistic. And we can never claim that we have 100% coverage of all the exchange wallets. Uh, but so after FTX, I think the other exchanges realized that, hey, it's probably in our own best interest to be more transparent about our reserves. And so thankfully, CZ and Binance uh, led the way here and they disclosed uh, lots of their wallets uh, where they have most of the customer deposits uh, in, in storage. And the nice thing about this was that we uh, have a product called Nonsense Portfolio, which allows people to plug in addresses from 45 different blockchains and get kind of one overview uh, of your holdings. And so that was built actually to help investors like you and me to keep track of our holdings. Um, but it turns out that it was also really useful to show the exchange reserves in real time. So basically, we took the addresses from Binance and just plugged it into uh, our product, Nonsense Portfolio, which you can check at portfolio.nonsense.ai. And uh, that created a dashboard, which we created a permanent link for, uh, right, slash dashboard slash Binance, and they could share that. Uh, and then what happened next was that all the other exchanges wanted to do the same thing. So Crypto.com reached out to us, Bitfinex reached out, Deribit, you know, lots of the, the other exchanges. And so we did the same thing. We just, it was very easy for us at that point. We just said, just give us your addresses, you know, and we'll, we'll plug them into the dashboard and people and you'll get a link that you can share with your community, your customers, your investors, and whatnot. And um, actually, now I've seen that some exchanges actually use their nonsense portfolio dashboard to in their investor updates as like they just screenshot it and share it with their <laughs> investors to say, here's how much assets we hold, uh, which is pretty cool. But yeah, this was a service we did, you know, free of charge to the exchanges. We felt it was good for the community to have more transparency. That's you know, our, our vision is to create transparency in a tokenized world. Um, so that's kind of how it came about. Like it, it was a great example of how industry can self-regulate and create more transparency. Yeah, that sounds great. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, there was a similar push uh, for those that were around in the crypto world after Mt. Gox uh, for proof of reserves and, and several exchanges uh, performed them then. Um, and, and only a few have really done it, though. Until FTX, I, I know Kraken and BitMEX have both done some uh, periodically yeah. on their own volition, sort of outside of this collapsing, the schedule of periodic exchange collapse. Yeah, I just want to follow up on a couple of things, Alex, because you said that Binance had disclosed lots of addresses for most of their customer assets. What do you mean by that? Well, one common mis uh, misconception is that uh, if you go on, say, Etherscan and you look up um, which Binance wallets are there, that that's going to show you the totality of uh, assets. But in reality, uh, Binance manages, you know, tens of millions of, 
of addresses because when you deposit funds into Binance, you get your own address. And so every account has its own unique address. And for some exchanges, you might even have multiple addresses that you control. And these uh, assets are not directly consolidated into these main wallets, as we like to refer to them as. And so uh, Binance definitely disclosed the major the vast majority of the assets uh, that they that they uh, custody on behalf of customers uh, but of course they didn't disclose the tens of millions of addresses and that's something we do separately uh, with our algorithms and our research that we tag up these different addresses so you know with nonson we we um, we have tens of millions of if not more than 100 million i think it's i don't know the exact number top of my head but we have tens of millions of exchange ad- addresses that we have labeled up um so yeah it, it is lots of uh you know lots yep lots of addresses but in the grand scheme of things like it's still a small portion so you don't get the full view only with what they have disclosed so it's more like the addresses that they disclosed we can uh, did they prove that they own those addresses to you did they sign messages with them or that is a great question and that's why i typically don't use the term proof of reserves myself because no, they they did not sign cryptographic messages with mm-hmm. the the addresses. They should have done that uh, if we wanted to really consider it proof. So we are trusting that they sent that they actually control the addresses. Of course, right. in in practical terms, if someone else owned the address, they could speak up and say, "Actually, I own this address," and then they could sign the message. Right. So it's very, very, very unlikely that they would share right. an address that they don't control. Um, so that was more like for practical purposes. So, so yeah, they, they should have signed them, and you know, it'd be great. They can actually sign them through nonsense, you know, with the portfolio, but uh, it's not something that we require to to publish them. No, I nor nor do I think you should have. I but I yeah, I want to raise this as sort of this nuance about proof of reserves or proof of assets. Yeah, sorry, the, you were going to go on. Yeah, the other point is uh, another a pushback that is often uh, presented. Uh, against proof of reserves is that proof of res- reserves is not enough, right? Because you need to have proof of liabilities. And I just kind of wanted to mention that because that's also true. If you want to get to proof of solvency, which is ultimately what you care about, you need to have proof of reserves and you need to have proof of liabilities. However, there is this uh, misconception again that that means that proof of reserves reserves does not have any value. And I don't think that's true. Um, there are many examples of exchanges or uh, lending platforms um, doing quite, you know, risky things with customer deposits, which would have been spotted if we had proof of reserves. For example, let's say you're, uh, you know, there's an example of a lending platform here in Singapore where there was something like 500 million US dollars deposited. I think top of my head, something like three or four hundred million out of that uh, was deposited into Anchor, like converted to mm. UST, deposited into Anchor, you know, UST DPEGs. And so, even if you didn't have the liabilities part, if you saw that on chain, which we did, um, then you know that should have raised some flags for regulators and customers as well. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, several great points. I agree that. I personally, I, when I say proof of reserves, I, I, there's a lot of literature on this and I typically do encompass uh, proof of both assets and liabilities in there, but you're absolutely right. Um, you know, if I have $500, but, and I prove to you that I've got it and it's yours, but it turns out I also owe 
a $500 elsewhere and mm. that's not included, then of course I'm not solvent. Um, and, and there are strategies, I think, to, to, you know, perform that in a defensible way. Um, so far, the best ideas I'm aware of do require some kind of outside audit also to make sure that sort of look over your shoulder while you're summing all the assets and liabilities. Um, but I, let's go to your, your point about, uh, about attribution, right. And, and the tagging that you guys have done. Uh, and because this is one of, I think one of the really groundbreaking things that Nansen did, um, was even if you can't tell, first of all, you've, you've got a lot of attribution in your database of who addresses may or may not belong to, like you said, for exchanges. But one of the, my favorite things, and I, I think most people's favorite things about Nansen, and I'm a user of Nansen is the, uh, the probabilistic tagging, right? So even if you don't, I was just looking up an address, uh, Will Alert uh, had tweeted an address that moved a lot of ether today, right? And I said, you know, let's go plug it into Nansen and see what it, what 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 they've got on it, right? And this is pretty clear. He called him an ETH whale, an EIP fifteen EIP fifteen fifty nine user, um, and that even just that, right? It's not much. And this is an address that this is part of a, tran- a transaction uh, series that all they do is just send in and then send out and then send in. So there's not a lot of activity on this one address, mm. but I've also seen things like, you know, medium sized Dex trader or um, <laughs> NF- NFT collector. Right. And it's just these simple sort of human readable things that you guys add based on the on-chain activity of an address. Um, even if you don't know who it is uh, that can give a really great idea. I'd love to like, you know, maybe the, the challenges behind that or the thought process? How do you come up with this pretty simple but powerful idea? Yeah, our mission is to surface the signal and create winners in the future of finance. And the example you just gave with, uh, you know, having labels that are human readable is very much part of that. Because when we started Nonsen, we saw those same alerts, right? The uh, 100 million tether going from ABC to one to three. But everyone always wondered, you know, is this significant? Should we care about this? You know, is this someone sending these funds into an exchange to buy, you know, tokens or Bitcoin or whatnot? Or is it someone redeeming? Like, what's actually going on here? And so the attribution or labeling of addresses was probably the, that's actually the kind of founding piece of technological insight that we had, that this is something the market wants. And it's something that can be very valuable. And it's also not easy to do at scale. Um, so, you know, I, my background is in data science and AI. My two co-founders are data engineers and uh, software engineers. So um, this is something we felt that we had a unique uh, shot at doing well. And so right now we have 250 million addresses labeled up. They, you can think of them as being labeled in two different ways. You mentioned some examples of behavioral tags. So these are tags that our algorithms will just apply. And it helps you, you know, in a very quick way, just understand what this wallet is. Instead of having to scan through like tens or hundreds of thousands of transactions on something like Etherscan, you just get a quick label that says this is a epic uh NFT collector, or this is a elite Dex trader, and that can often elite. just help you. Yeah, <laughs> elite is like the <laughs> highest tier of Dex traders, right? Or you know, uh, smart money is probably the most uh, popular behavioral tag, which has to do with how successful this wallet is. So, did it trade with uh, you know sizable profit? Did it uh, do any yield farming that generated uh, you know a lot of returns on their capital and so on? So. Those are behavioral labels, but we also do, as we kind of just discussed with exchanges, we also do entity tagging. So 
the other part of, of this is um, very often you want to know who an address uh, belongs to. And so that's where you have entities. And of course, exchanges are the main category of entities because they control a massive portion of, uh, or they custody a massive portion of all crypto assets. But you also have other entities like funds. Uh, you have entities like uh, actually smart contract uh, platforms like Compound and Aave could be examples of what we consider entities as well. Um, you have even you know influencers, um, people who talk about NFTs and, and stuff on Twitter and have been public uh, about their wallets. So yeah, these are the two main categories. And of course, the methods that you would use to to label or to do attribution for the two categories are a little bit different. For exchanges, um, you would make heavy use of algorithms because you have to study how the exchange manages their own customer uh, deposit wallets. And then you create algorithms that have high precision and high recall uh, on those. Um, and then for something like funds, you have to do a lot more manual work. So you have to literally read press releases of fundraising rounds and then play kind of a game of Sudoku or elimination on, you know, this address participated in these four fundraising rounds, you know, and that means it's probably, you know, multi-coin or three arrows or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, there's no silver bullet here. Like you, you have to make use of a lot of different uh, techniques. But the cool thing is that these different techniques then can power up each other because the more labels you have, the easier it gets to label the next wallet, right? So there's a very interesting compounding network effect there. Yeah, fascinating. I'm looking right now at the smart money dashboard and there's literally just a live feed of DEX transactions that uh, various smart money tagged entities are doing. Um, somebody, you know, buying, swapping 60,000 USDC for DAI. That's a labeled address. I won't name the, the label on it, but it's a it's a person. <laughs> um, but then, right. you know, a, mm. uh, a smart DEX trader doing a trade, buying some token I've never heard of. I'm not sure. Um, so and, it, and it's a live feed, by the way. There's also other features, by the way. But that's the that's when you just go in there. Um, no, really interesting stuff. Let's let's go back to you mentioned a lender that uh, you had watched in Singapore. We don't have to name it the lender or whatever, but they had put money in anchor and and this is ultimately had been a red flag for you guys right which was the um incentive incentivized yield pool on terra usd uh that ultimately sort of led to the collapse of, of luna and terra um similarly you guys were following a lot of ftx related stuff i mean what what kind of regular i'm sure you were you know when this thing started happening you, you know i think everyone in this space that does analytics or research or, or investing was like let's immediately go to all the tools we've got and see what we can figure out is happening. Um, what did you guys find uh, at Nansen when you, when, you know, at, at, at any point during the sort of FTX blow up? Yeah, there were, there's always two things you can, two perspectives that one is the real time perspective, like what's happening right now. And then there's the, after the fact kind of historical analysis where you have more time to dig into stuff. So for the real-time perspective, the main thing uh, you like people were looking at with Nonsen was the exchange flows. So when people started withdrawing from FTX, uh, those dashboards blew up because people were monitoring how much money is flowing out of FTX. And many journalists started using those uh, dashboards. They started DMing us, you know, what's, what's happening? Can you comment on this? And then, they, of course, the, the, the next thing is they started monitoring what was happening with other exchanges, which is what led to the kind of proof of reserves and proof of liabilities wave afterwards. 
Um, and for literally, I think, literally weeks, maybe months after FTX. Um, I mean, now it's only it's two, three months after. But the whole period almost since FTX, we've been getting journalists talking about, for example, Binance exchange flows, right? They're like, is, is Binance going to collapse? And <laughs> it, it's interesting because the data can also be used to, they can be used to uh, help you move fast. But they can also be used to maybe calm your nerves a little bit. So an example of that was with Binance when mm -hmm. I was on Bloomberg and they were asking if you know Binance was the next FTX. And the data suggested that it was a completely different situation because Binance, you know, through their proof of reserves, again, with all the caveats that come uh, with that, had shown that they had more than $60 billion of assets. And if someone withdraws $3, 4000000000 billion, that's a lot of money, but it doesn't really move the needle for them. It's not gonna gonna break uh anything so so you know that's a lot of people are looking at exchange flows another a few other interesting things that happened around ftx was that when they halted the withdrawals uh you could still see some withdrawals and i actually tweeted to sbf about that because i was like what's what's going on here and it turned out to be these uh um, Bahamas KYC uh, accounts yeah. that could withdraw <laughs> funds. So this yeah. was also something that I think people picked up from the blockchain that they didn't fully halt the withdrawals. There's something else going on. And then they had to comment on that. There was there were also, I think, two hacks, one white uh, hat hack and a, another black hat hack, which you could see in the exchange flows dashboards. And you could see who has been withdrawing too, right? It's not just the total volume, but you can actually drill down and see who are the top withdrawers in the last... 24 hours or one hour from FTX. And that's where it became a lot easier to kind of yeah monitor that. So so a lot of that stuff was going on very quickly in, in real time with our, with our dashboards. People were using that. Uh, there's another perspective too, though, which is kind of the maybe before the fact. Uh, and so looking for signs of bad things before, you know, uh, shit hits the fan. And so... An example of that might be the somewhat strange relationship between Alameda and FTX, where there was a lot of commingling of funds. We saw massive transfers of FTT from Alameda to FTX, which I think in hindsight we've learned was effectively Alameda collateralizing loans. So mm -hmm. FTX lending out customer funds to Alameda and then Alameda collateralizing that with mickey mouse tokens aka ftt <laughs> right so um yeah. and then ftt collapsing we, we know what happened so uh so th there's these different perspectives that you can have there, we also have a, a product called smart alerts where you get literally like notifications pushed to your telegram or slack or discord and there are many examples where customers have told us that because they received alerts on for example uh with with ust people pulling funds out of the curve liquidity pools, they were able to move fast and withdraw their own funds before the whole DPEG uh, happened. Um, so anyway, so that's like the before and, and during. And then on the historical analysis, there's a long research piece that we wrote on this, which uh, people can probably Google if they want to. Um, uh, you could just Google for announcement FTX collapse, and there's a kind of 20-minute read uh, on what happened but it looks into a lot of these uh, aspects too and how there was a relationship between alameda and fdx and ftt um 
and yeah, if, many, many other points actually that people can check out there. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great piece. I've, I've read it. And, um, I, I think there, there were some really clear takeaways that I had on FTX. One was very simple was, um, not co-mingling proprietary and, and customer assets. Um, or they claim, you know, Sam and his blogs has claimed that they didn't co-mingle it. Uh, they, they just borrowed uh, more than they th- should have from, from it. Um, I think, you know, one thing that people noticed, I think, uh, with FTX was really a difficulty in locating FTX's cold wallets. Exactly. Um, yeah. That yeah. is a great point. I mean, that was something I was going to mention, actually, that we struggled quite a bit finding FTX's assets. And I and people would frequently message us and say, hey, why does FTX ha- has so few stable coins or ETH compared to, say, Coinbase and Binance? And we kind of always just thought maybe we're missing something <laughs> but yeah but actually in hindsight you know that was kind of a red flag and if this uh transparency push had happened earlier spf would have been forced to maybe keep better uh be, first of all manage these assets better but also be more transparent about it right so yeah i think absolutely that's a great point yeah it could have uh the, the proof of assets of some kind leaving the just even a narrow one right especially even better if you prove you own the addresses, sure. But okay, a proof of assets um, at, at very least would have deterred this type of behavior because FTX would have never been able to pass a simple proof of assets, you know, attestation or whatever we want to call it, um, because I I don't think they they had the they had the assets exactly. They were lent out to Alameda and you know you know paid to politicians and media corporations and whatnot. Yeah. And Al, you guys had really great, uh, there was great tagging on uh, and labeling on Alameda addresses. And you can see some of the crazy uh, stuff. And, and and we know a lot of their addresses now. They've come out in one way or another. But, um, yeah. you know, I encourage folks, if they have uh, Nansen, uh, it's Nansen.ai, to go and look up some of those Alameda addresses and see the kind of wild stuff they were doing. Um, yeah. Really risky trading uh, in DeFi and elsewhere. Oh, yeah. I mean... So I, w- I, was, uh, I was interviewed recently on this documentary that's being made about FTX. And uh, one thing mm-hmm. we, we talked about was how uh, Alameda was kind of known as this uh, industrialized yield farmer in DeFi summer, right? So that was almost part of the game that when you looked at a new yield farm, you would check if Alameda was in it. And if they were in it, you figured that's probably decent, you know, risk uh, reward ratio. Uh, so, yeah, they were we we had been tracking them since 2020 at least, uh, yeah. and and uh, they were a great source of alpha in many cases. I mean, if you're if you had the risk appetite to do some of the stuff they were doing, um, and it was uh, it'll it'll be. I mean, the cool thing about the blockchain is that you have this immutable history now of that wallet's activity, and like you could probably write a book about one of those addresses alone right all the right. stuff they were doing uh so i kind of like that aspect of, of uh blockchain analytics that you you have this kind of glacial immutable history that is the source of you know lore for the future generations as well right it's kind of interesting to think about yeah from a financial analysis standpoint financial history absolutely it is sort of like a digital stone tablet yeah. Um, that you can look into let you know let's let's before we wrap let's let's go on those that a little bit you know i you know what you've talked a little bit about why you're been interested in what nansen's uh you know sort of first goals were with building this attribution and 
making things human readable. What are you looking forward to now? Um, whether, and I, you know, I feel to what extent, here's a way of asking it. To what extent is Nansen's future tied to a crypto native future? Or do you think we'll be getting more of a traditional finance future in onto blockchains and, or, or some combination of both? And what role do you envision Nansen playing, uh, you know, sort of regardless how that plays out? Yeah, I think all of last year shows that crypto as an industry will not succeed unless we have transparency. And I think Nansen plays a incredibly important role in creating that transparency for investors, operators, uh, potentially regulators and so on in the future, although that's not really a kind of customer segment we focus on right now. We are very focused on crypto natives. And so going forward, um, one big shift that's happening, actually, there are two, maybe two big shifts I can talk about. The first one is that we're going from being a single product uh, company to a multi-product company. And the examples I would mention here, there are basically four areas, right? analytics is where we started that's kind of our bread and butter but we moved into portfolio tracking that i talked about with the exchange reserves as well which is quite adjacent to analytics we are also now doing more research um so we have a research portal which is uh gaining a lot of popularity and then uh in a couple of weeks we're gonna uh, announce um nonsense query which is a basically a programmatic way for teams and enterprises and institutions to access blockchain data, the best blockchain data in the market. And so that's a big shift for us, like going from being kind of one product to, to a multi-product. And eventually the vision is to create the information super app of Web3, if you will. Uh, a little bit similar to how something like Bloomberg is the information super app of traditional finance. Um, so, and then the other shift that we've been seeing organically, I mean, organically, but also something we've been working hard to achieve is that our customer base has grown a lot on the B2B side. So we have more institutions using our product. Back in 2020, when we started Nansen, it was used mostly by individual, sophisticated retail investors. Um, now, more than 60% of our revenues come from institutions and teams uh, and enterprises. So that's a big shift as well. I, I don't think we, like we want to do both B2C and B2B. We want to serve both retail investors and institutions and teams. Um, we, we strongly believe that if you want to be the category leader for information, you have to serve both uh, B2C and B2B, because that's just how, the, that's the nature of crypto. It's always going to be retail driven. Uh, so you can't, you can't avoid retail. Like you can't, you have to serve them really, really well. Uh, they're at the frontier. Um, and so over time, what I hope to see is, so first of all, this year, we're just going to improve our product significantly. Uh, even things like the latency of our uh, dashboards, like how fast they load is literally going to improve by 100x with this new uh, update we're making in the next few months, which is going to be incredible. Um, we are going to improve the user experience a lot on many different fronts. We're going to allow for more configuration and personalization in the product so that you can add your own custom wallet labels. You can customize the dashboards to a larger extent. Um, and we're going to add more Teams functionality to the product. 
So there's a lot of really, really cool things coming that I'm personally excited about as a user of Nonsen. I literally use Nonsen every single day, um, even this year. But you know, beyond that, I think that if we look into, say, 2030 or 2035, I truly believe in a future where blockchains are the financial fabric uh, of the world and where, say, more than a billion people own digital assets in various different forms. That could be not just owning, you know, uh, Dogecoin or Bitcoin or whatever, but also owning a piece of real estate or owning a fraction of a song, right? The royalty rights and so on. And in that future, you need to have, like, first of all, that future doesn't happen unless you have transparency. But when we are in that future, people would expect to have more information available. And so hopefully what we can do in the first phase of nonsense is just to make sure that the industry succeeds by supporting the pioneers and making sure that they become winners and we can build this future of finance. And then in the second phase, I hope that nonsense can expand more to serve a much wider range of users. So yeah, that's in a nutshell how I see the future for nonsense. Alex Savanovic, uh, CEO and founder of Nansen. Thank you so much for coming on Galaxy Brains. Thanks for having me. That's all we have for Galaxy Brains this week. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we always appreciate your comments and feedback. Hit us up on Twitter at GLXY Research or email us research at galaxy.com. We love to hear from our listeners. Um, that's it. Have a great and safe weekend, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To follow Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email, read our content at galaxy.com research, and follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. See you next week.